Welcome to the podcast, Cocktail Party Economic Conversations, with your hosts, Evie Animate and Richard Maranta. Well, welcome back to Cocktail Party Economic Conversations. Uh, we're covering Chapter 8 from the book, Cocktail Party Economics, looking at market forces and it's really uh, a great pleasure to have Evan Sedal uh, as our guest. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the housing market, for which he probably knows quite a bit about. So thanks, Evan, for being here. Delighted. Glad to be back in Guelph virtually. <laughs> this is not Guelph. <laughs> Hi, Evan. Uh, my, I'm Rick Maranta. I work with Evan on Cocktail Party Economics. Welcome uh, to this segment. Yeah, so... Um, just want to ask you a few questions about yourself. And uh, I think a lot of people have uh, sort of questions about Canada Mortgaging Housing Corporation that you're the president and CEO of. I, yep. I'm, I'm not exactly sure what you do, but it may be if you in layman's terms sort of explain what, what uh, you do and like how the, the corporation makes money and all that kind of stuff. And then maybe just a bit of a background of how you got to where you are from Guelph. Sure. Well, I'll start with CMHC. So, um, and the old book on CMHC was that we had this commercial business, which was mortgage insurance and securitization, and a non-commercial business, which was assisted housing. And in U.S. parlance, that'd be like Fannie and Freddie on one side and, and housing and urban development on the other. Um, but we've actually unified the company in terms of what we actually do. What we do is promote housing affordability in Canada. And we use those different things, those different programs and capabilities to do that. Um, as for my own background, uh, I graduated from the University of Guelph undergrad in 87, went to law school, did not practice law for a moment. Well, that's actually a bit of a lie. I spent one summer around here at a law firm, and then I went into investment banking. And after investment banking, I spent a little bit of time with uh, the Irving family in New Brunswick, and then found my way to the Bank of Canada to work with my friend Mark Carney. And after that, to CMHC, which is what I've been doing for the last seven years. Great journey. <laughs> So you went to University of Guelph. So what was that like there? What was Guelph like? Yeah, at that time. Yeah, it was, you know, probably a lot of, in a lot of ways the same as, as it is today. I was speaking to a friend whose daughter is uh, actually just joined the vet school. And, um, you know, it, Guelph is this, it's a university town and we have few of them in Canada. Um, great, great place to live. You know, wonderful intellectual environment. And um, it was, it was different for me as kind of a nurturing university. And I had the opportunity to rediscover that as a member of the board of directors some years later. Um, and I actually, and it, I think deepened my appreciation for what Guelph is and, and my pride in having been there. Yeah. So you used the word nurturing university. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's interesting. Cause actually, you know, my, my, both my boys went to Guelph. I went to Waterloo, but um, I think that's one of the reasons that appealed to them that it, there seemed to be, Nice people there. And Evie's a great recruiter, of course. I don't know how many people she's recruited in our circle. <laughs> but anyways, yeah, that's an interesting word, nurturing. I like that. Yeah, yeah. and you know, well, my experience... Sorry, Evie. Go ahead. I was just going to say that uh, this fall, more than any, given that COVID has happened, um, trying to be nurturing in a virtual climate is kind of tough. Yeah. Yeah, you, you know, it's and it's hard as a leader, as a CEO, to do the same thing because we we do try to have a nurturing culture at CMHC. I was just going to make reference to Evie and say that um, I'm sure my microeconomics undergrad prof was Brenda Whiteside, 
and Brenda mm-hmm. ended up being in administration and was a very you know, real friend and probably was for me at the, during my time, um, one of those nurturing people who really, you know, was a touchstone for what Guelph meant to me. Yeah, well, it's great when you get an economics prof that can uh, kind of do that for people. So it's yeah. kind of nice. Yeah. So, so I was thinking about, you know, intro micro and, you know, basic concepts. And I thought, you know, I know with your tenure and housing right now, I just thought I'd ask a couple questions about um, the housing market in Canada, because it's pretty, um, I, I think people find it kind of scary. So yeah. because they don't know what's going to happen. What do you see as sort of the major forces that could be changing housing over the next bit? It's it's hard. You know, look, it's hard to predict. And we're in the business of needing to try to predict. Um, it's hard to predict because the forces of supply and demand that affect the housing markets, because after all, you, in a sense, while they're connected, you can't pick up a house in Guelph and sell it in Toronto. It's a distinct market. Um, and we may delve into these factors affecting supply and demand. But, um, you know, and the other thing that's really fascinating is the classic supply and demand that we used to thought about, we used to think about is changing because of behavioral factors. And, you know, the old, the, the Adam Smith rational person doesn't exist in our market. And therefore, when you seek to understand economics, as we all know, um, human behavior and psychology is a huge, huge part of that. On the back of COVID, we're seeing many, many manifestations of, of that from a demand point of view and probably supply point of view too. So in what, give me an example, like, what do you mean? Yeah. So, um, for example, people are working away from the workplace. I happen to be in my office right now in my office space in Toronto, but it's one of, I think five days I've spent in the office since mid-March and, and people are finding their ways out of the city and into the country into more bucolic pastoral, uh, kind of places. And so that's shifting the demand, you know, places like Collingwood, Muskoka, um, the Laurentians, where I spent some time in the summer, they're hot, hot markets, uh, you know, and the other factor, which continues to defy me, is that, you know, we have deferred an economic adjustment that's got to happen as a result of this pandemic, you know, bars, restaurants, tourism, travel are all going to change, you know, we won't lose those industries, but they're going to have to conduct themselves differently. But government income support measures have deferred that mercifully, frankly, because it came at such a personal cost in terms of unemployment. But that unemployment's going to happen. And unemployment leads to reduced demand for housing. We haven't seen that. The combination of income support and um, very low interest rates and the promise of low interest rates for a long time have actually juiced housing demand in, in the near, in the short run. Mm-hmm. So are you worried about a housing bubble? Well, in my job, I'm not allowed to use the B word. I mean, I'm allowed, but I'll say this, you know, we forecast the beginning of this crisis um, because we thought we needed to a range of peak to trough change in average uh, house prices in Canada of between nine and 18%, nine based on a base case and 18 based on a very severe W shaped COVID kind of pandemic, which we have not seen yet. And we said it was worst case. Of course, everybody said Siddall's predicting an 18% decline, which is not what we said. Um, but uh, we th- that peak to trough number, um, all things being equal, has gone up because the peak's higher. And that's just math. Now, th- it may mean that the trough is higher too. So we haven't done that work yet, but the peak has certainly gone up. 
So housing has basically gone up because people still have income because the government has given some income supports um, in place. So we didn't get the drop the way. And then I, I know that moving out of Toronto, definitely you start to see housing prices are going up yeah. uh, from people saying, okay, we can work from home permanently. And so let's get out of Toronto and yeah. cash out and uh, move somewhere a little cheaper, which I, I think is sort of reasonable. Like that's a rational thing to do, wouldn't it be? Sure it's a rational thing to do. Um, it's a very rational thing to do. But you know, when the un when unemployment manifests itself, and it's got to, you know, we've got yeah. north of a quarter of our labor force on income support. Like at some oh. point, that yeah, it's huge. Um, and and we haven't seen significant delinquencies in unemployment. We haven't seen significant foreclosures, also because CMHC and the other and the private mortgage insurers have deferred mortgage payments. There's something like fourteen or fifteen percent of Canadian mortgages are not being paid. Um, that like those are fundamental economics. No, and oh. like think about the dominoes, like my mind just keeps on going on all this stuff because you know you order food or and you think my, my son worked down in toronto right and um he doesn't buy food i, I cook him food all the time now <laughs> but in toronto he'd go out every day and have lunch but you know so all those businesses they're not going to have all their customers so That's like just right. the domino effect eventually it's like a wave right eventually it's going to hit you right so to me it's you know, restaurants are, they can't afford to pay the rent they used to pay. Um, so someone, something's got to give and it's costs and that's people at the end of the day. So, um, you know, and we never said that this adjustment would happen until late in this year. Um, for those reasons, we knew the income support measures were in place and we knew the, the government would succeed in deferring the economic adjustment, but you know, you can't kick a can down the road forever. And, um, and there will be some kind of adjustment. Uh, so we'll see. Oh, it feels like, oh, I was hoping for a light at the end of the tunnel. And it looks like it's just a train coming. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, there's a bunch of things that have us concerned um, in terms of other factors we haven't talked about. You know, immigration's fallen off. Immigration has been a significant source of economic growth for Canada. Significant. Hundreds of thousands of people a year. That's basically nothing now because our borders aren't open. Um there, now, there may be some pent up when when that's released. There may be some pent up immigration that we restore. But, you know, there's a bunch of factors that, and that that's all in demand side. I was going to ask you about this. Um, so our friends are buying a house out in, in St. Catharines, hopefully, if it goes through. But so we went down and visited and it was being sold by Purple Bricks. That kind of uh, model, you know, Purple Bricks, they, they're sort no. of like non, no? They they sell like uh, private. I think it's private, and they have a different model. I don't. I don't think they're like a normal. Du proprio. So probably the same idea. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, I was just wondering because I, I heard that they were leaving Canada or they're going under or whatever. To me, that would be like a more attractive thing to happen these days, right? With. Yeah, there's there are a bunch of fascinating. So where's real estate going? You know, there's a bunch of fascinating real estate tech businesses out there. Um, home sharing, for example, right? You know, you have work sharing, you could have home sharing. Um, we've got all, we actually have enough housing in Canada to house everybody in Canada. We've just got it in the wrong darn places. 
and some people are overhoused. My my wonderful mother is single and lives in a three bedroom home, right? And she she's bought it. She's allowed to live in that. But that is a form of of inchoate housing supply we haven't capitalized on. And one of the things we're trying to do at CMHC, because our goal is housing affordability, is for example, we're starting a product called Home Match, where um, it's an app, and we will match for people with houses they want to have occupied with people who need them. So think of a student at the University of Guelph and a senior in Guelph. And you've got to make sure privacy laws are, are respected and people are safe. But it's a way of, of managing the supply-demand imbalance that exists in different places and therefore containing unnecessary increase in demand and therefore increase in prices. Do you feel like, uh, I mean, I was just thinking about, um, uh, you know, the what's the... I never used it, but what's the one where you can, you know, rent a room in a like Airbnb? Airbnb. I know it's having. I mean, lots of people bought condos to be Airbnb'd, and now they're realizing they can't make money at it. Yeah. Uh, given this event, I think it's pretty significant. What do you see never coming back? Like, what's a structural shift that you think is not? You know, once it's all over, we drift back. Maybe new people. Not this, you know, some people lost, some people won, but uh, we'll basically go back. But what do you say is, you know, you just don't see coming back? Yeah, I, I'm not in the never game. I will get answer your question. I'm not in the never definitive game, and I don't believe this new normal thing um, will certainly shift, but there will be some reversion to what we want to do. Um, will Airbnb go out of business? I actually don't think so, but it won't be as robust as we thought it was going to be because the costs of maintaining a, a, a a hygienic place to rent um, and the risks associated with uh, a place with high turnover and hotels, you know, those have changed. So um, those business models have to change. Uh, yeah, I, I heard about a, this fascinating idea with restaurants, for example, where, you know, people are crowded in, into a small space and, and the way to run a restaurant was multiple tables, multiple turns. And, and you had to pay for a bunch of things, including staff. Well, what if there's a British model where you go and you just go order your food and you go order your drinks and you're not, you actually don't have wait staff. Uh, things like that. I think there'll be subtle changes in, in how businesses run in the long run that affect it, but never coming back, Evie. Uh, I wouldn't want to be that definitive. Yeah. So you think, well, there might be some slight structural changes, but um, there's no, something's never coming back. I, I, I worry a little bit about that. You know, I, because, you know, you, you you go around downtown, like small town places or you downtown and you realize stores have closed, you know, and yeah. you need this critical mass of stores to get people. Like I was at the mall this morning and none of them are opening at the same time, all the stores. Some are opening at 10, some are opening at 11. So how do you get this, everyone showing up? And I went, oh, wow, this is actually real. This coordination problem is actually a real problem. So I said, how come all these stores aren't open? They said, oh, they don't have the staff. And I was yeah. like, what? I don't understand. I was completely confused. Well, okay, that's a fascinating story. So CERB, the Canada Emergency Response Benefit, actually pays people a fair bit of money, and that was deliberate. But in many cases, it's a disincentive to work, right? Now, yep. CERB can change. Um, but what we designed these programs to deal with a freezing economy. They weren't designed to deal with a thawing economy. And so they're probably going to be more expensive to thaw than we thought. And that's probably okay. That's probably okay because the the massive economic 
um, cost and in people terms would have been intolerable otherwise. You know, that what you just said, I have a friend across the road where we get our Thai food. It's a Thai restaurant. And, uh, you know, I talk to the guy whenever I go in and he, he had to close a couple of nights on Fridays and Saturdays because he lost his cooks um, to serve. I mean, he had a job for them, but it, it was better for them to stay on serve. So he had a hard time. They're, they're struggling. Work, he said he was working 14-hour days. So, yeah, that's just an example of... Uh, well, yeah. serve is ending. I mean, yeah. that's yeah. not going to keep going. And um, so people... Yeah, coming back. Yeah, well, they might be more open more. But I, I guess getting back to the housing, you start to see that um, the housing is kind of a basic need. Yeah. Certainly, you know, when you look at homelessness, the first thing to try to get people back into society is get stable housing, right? Housing is like the first kind of rung to um, a civil society. Do you see any issues in Canada with respect to getting really affordable housing across the country? Well, now, how much time do we have? Um, well, no, we have a little bit. I, I, I think what you're going to say is important. So we have a little bit of time. I mean, yeah, I'm just underscoring the, the importance of that, the importance of that question and the centrality to what we do at CMHC and what I've spent my time on. So um, there, are, there are a couple of particular problems with housing in economic terms. One is that demand is very elastic and supply is very inelastic. And what that means is, in a, you know, in, in a cocktail party economics kind of way, is that new demand boosts prices in the short run consistently because there's no supply response. It takes too long to build a house and to get approvals and all that stuff. So we need to change that. We need to work with municipalities to accelerate approvals for affordable housing. We're trying to do that. And then the other thing is we've got to try and, and, and inelasticize the demand function. So we need to try and contain unwanted demand. The mortgage stress test, the mortgage interest stress test is a way to take um, the stimulus of low interest rates and, 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 and detune it, detune it a little bit so that the, the, the demand response isn't quite as immediate. Now, you know, low interest rates, we're seeing it in massively increased prices, but um, both of those things are policies that that help moderate the effect on housing affordability. Um, but there's a lot, it, you know, we have as an objective, our company, we've declared this, what we call a big, hairy, audacious goal, which is that by 2030, everyone in Canada will have a home that meets their needs and that they can afford. And the place we have to start is with vulnerable populations. You know, you look at how this, this crisis has affected seniors in long-term care, has affected black and racialized people distinctively from people who look like me. Um, and, and we have yet to resolve the confounding problem of indigenous people in this country. And so until we address these issues with vulnerable people, um, we're going to have a massive problem with housing affordability in our country. And you know, have you got it right? Uh, it, it, is a, it is a crucial enabler in somebody's feeling of belonging and inclusiveness in our society. Uh, a guy called, um, uh, I'm, gonna, I'm just blanking on his name. I'll get his name in a minute, wrote a, wrote a book called Evicted. And, and he said, without, a, without stable housing, everything falls apart. Yeah. yeah. True. It's a core, core thing. Yeah. It's one of Maslow's basic. So are you involved in the types of housing that gets built? Like, I mean, as, as you get older, right, you start looking for like, you know, bungalows and different things. Are you, 
are you part of that? Uh, how does that work? That's no, we're not. And the reason Rick, we're not is because that's a little Politburo ish. You know, we want the market, the plant economy stuff. You don't want some middle-aged white guy in Ottawa, right? Deciding what right. Guelph needs from a housing supply point of view. That's a little deterministic and a little overplanned. That market will be driven by developers and people in that market. Um, but what we do do is we finance uh, people through through a program called the Rental Construction Financing Initiative. We have these great titles for our program. Um, <laughs> Which I'm sure has an acronym that's in, you know, RCFI. impossible to say. <laughs> and RCFI. And, and it funds new rental housing. So it's aptly named. Anyway, what we do is we give low interest loans to developers who promise to rent uh, the units they buy for less than market median rents. And so we do stimulate affordability that way. Yeah, well, I, you know, I, you think about the housing market and um, and you realize that there, there's a lot of pressures on it and then you could just quickly be evicted. So that becomes an issue. And now we have rental where, okay, you put laws into place so it's difficult to be evicted. Or even in this case, uh, now people are not paying their rent. That really gives a disincentive for somebody to say, let me build an apartment building. Like, because you now have actually policies that make it sort of difficult for renters or, or for, for landlords to actually collect rent. So I look at it from their side too. Like, why would I want to go into a business which seems to have this very weird cash flow if they choose not to pay? Yeah, so, uh, I worry about it too. And, you know, you remember early in this crisis, people were hoarding toilet paper. And, yeah. and that felt, it, it, it's just hoarding and hoarding is something that's very antisocial. Well, not paying your rent, if you can afford to pay your rent, is also also antisocial. Because, you know, you're, you're harming the risk, the, the generalized risk associated with building a rental building or owning a rental building. And someone's going to pay for that. Yeah, no, I, I think it's a, it's a very big concern. You know, I, I, I worry about, because rental, you know, not everybody needs to own. Rental is a, like my mother went from owning, 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 and now she lives in a long-term uh, senior's apartment and she rents. Like there's yeah. no reason for someone at her age to be owning a house. Um, she doesn't need to. Renting is also is a viable and actually positive net present value option for a lot of people. And so we don't need to have everyone owning their own home. That's right. We have extremely high levels of home ownership in Canada. Um, people take me as anti-home ownership. Um, I'm actually not anti-home ownership. Um, I'm anti-over-promotion of home ownership, which, which some people in the residential real estate business do to line their own pockets, mm -hmm. uh, precisely for the reason that you say, that rental is a, is a form of secure tenure. It's a, it's a, I rent, um, and uh, it's a perfectly fine way to live. But the, the, there's just so much support for ownership. And, and, and in part, the government's policies, and I mean federal, provincial, municipal, territorial, um, have made the problem a little bit worse uh, because we've overstimulated rental um, versus, excuse me, overstimulated ownership versus rental. What about the banks? What about the banks? Like my, this was something my wife, my wife's an accountant, and I remember uh, looking for our first house, and the bank said, oh, yeah, you can afford twice as much what, as what my wife figured out on our spreadsheet. Right? Yeah. And I don't know, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, sometimes I think 
Yeah, if you eat oatmeal, you can afford a certain level of house, right? This is a critical, crucial, crucial point you're making that, that, that people don't understand. So what they'll do is they'll point to real estate mortgage losses and they'll say, there's no risk. There's no risk in these mortgages. At a microeconomic level, that's true. So if, I, if CMHC insures a mortgage, we are going to have very, very few losses. Canadians will pay their mortgage. How will they do that, however? They won't buy a car. They'll eat oatmeal instead of steak. They'll, what they'll do is they'll economize on their consumption. Consumption is 58% of our economy. So if I over lever to buy a house today, what I'm doing is I am bringing forward future consumption dollars to buy a house today, which means I won't spend it in the future. Over leverage has been proven to be a drag on future income, future uh, uh, growth. And at something like, so the Bank for International Settlements uh, did a study and a couple of terrific economists called um, uh, Mian and Sufi wrote a book called House of Debt, similar analysis. The BIS work says that above 80% um, debt to national income, you have a drag on future growth. We were at 99% last December. Our current numbers based on deferrals and all that stuff are that Canada's above 115% right now. That's a problem. That's a real problem. And that's why um, CMHC is not anti-home ownership. We're actually pro-home ownership, pro-affordable home ownership because uh, pushing debt levels so high and prices so high has a cost and we haven't had that reckoning yet. No, well, that's kind of what happened in the last housing crisis, right? In 2008 is that people were underwater, like the, you know, their, their, their house was worth less than their mortgage. So they, and, and in the U S I know the rules are different than in Canada and Canada, it's harder to walk away from your mortgage in the U S they were just walking away. So your keys in Canada. That's right. So I, I I think that in terms of the housing market, I I guess we're this podcast is being recorded in the summer of 2020. Uh, It'll be watched some, you know, 2020, 2021, I'm really hoping people are looking back on this a couple of years from now going, oh, that's how bad it was back then. It's gotten a lot better. But I worry that this drag is going to, they're going to be feeling it still in like a year, two years. You're modeling. Do you see any quicker recovery or do you think it's, um, this is going to be a slow coming out? Yeah, we've, we actually, so, we, we do a bunch of economic modeling on, on the housing market, certainly. Um, and uh, we have modeled, we do a lot of scenario planning because we have a view, um, which is kind of obvious, but people don't do it, that uh, predictions are a, a loser's game. Now, whatever you predict, you're going to be wrong. Better, you set yourself up for a range of different scenarios and think about what that means and therefore run your business accordingly. So, uh, you know, we've got some wildly negative um, projections and we've got some pretty okay projections and we're modeling all of those. That range doesn't sound so good. <laughs> yeah, well, it's not an awesome set of facts. Oh, I got a question. Of, I have a question. Um, so what has driven the pricing of houses uh, up so high? Like, I mean, this is just from my own experience living in Oakville. I live in a, a townhouse, small townhouse. Yeah. And back, you know, a number of years ago, we were looking at, you know, a detached house. So we'd go and, and it was like hundred grand more. 
and we were always going, you know, really, do we need that? But then, you know, the, the, the gap between what people sold those houses for and, and what you can afford now has just gone crazy. So do you have any sense of what's driven that so high? Yeah, in basic terms, um, I'm going to give you something unique about housing in a second, but in basic economic terms, um, it's this point about inelasticity of supply versus elasticity of demand. The elasticity of demand part demands some conversation. Um, supply is just slow. And part of the reason it's slow is we're running out of land. Um, mm-hmm. Land is now 75 to 80% of the cost in our big cities of homes. You, we're not making new space for single family dwellings. Um, and growing horizontally isn't working. We have to grow vertically, right? So what we have to do is increase densification. That is the solution to housing affordability. On the demand side, housing is a funny thing. I challenge you to think of an asset that is consumable, you use it, investable, you can invest in it, and tradable. Healthcare is investable and consumable, you can't sell it. Education is investable and consumable, you can't sell it. It's, and because of that, it's, it's really given to compounding demand effects that can promote boom and bust cycles. Um, and so housing is a very funny thing. And the, the problem when you're in the middle of a boom cycle is it looks like trees grow to the sky and they just don't. <laughs> um, somebody once told me, I actually think it was Mark Carney, that of the 46 financial crises globally for which we have housing data, two thirds of them were preceded by boom and bust cycles in real estate. Oh. I just saw the look on Evie's face. So if someone's tracking, if we have a student watching this and they start tracking real estate, it might actually be a good um, a good ace in your back pocket when you're trying to do some predicting about what you should pay for a house in a particular yeah. market. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because it, all, all these kids are going to have the same, they're all facing the same thing. Like I know my kids are like 28 and 29 and they're, they're going like, we're not going to, you can't afford a house. We're not going to be able to afford a house ever. Right. So, right. So the propensity to rent has shifted significantly in places like Vancouver and Toronto. And that's Mm -hmm. the right response. That's Mm -hmm. the right response. Right. Um, That's a rational Adam Smith kind of thing to do. It's a good substitute. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Now you were said earlier, you said you had something else you wanted to say about housing that you thought was important. Oh, it was this boom busting. Okay. So the boom bust is a really important issue. Well, when we're taking a look at markets uh, and, you know, there are markets for detached houses, condos, rural, you know, city. um, Mm -hmm. So you're, you know, these are multiple markets that might be close to each other, but they're not perfect substitutes. So uh, yeah, you can't move a house that you really love to the location you really like. But you can move yourself, right? But you can move yourself. You can live where I am at King and Bay, or you can commute from Guelph. Um, and this is another really fascinating thing about it in economic terms. So um, is that a good thing or is that not a good thing? Because if I, live in Guelph, if I live here in downtown Toronto, I don't need a car. If I live in Guelph, I for sure need a car. And we, we found that... Um, People who live outside of urban locations and suburban locations actually double their greenhouse gas consumption. 
Uh, housing is something like 10, 11%, just the housing envelope itself in terms of emissions. It doubles if you're outside of an urban location. So when, when I talk about the need for densification growing up instead of out, that cost is not just economic. It's actually, I mean, if we were to fully price carbon, uh, we would be more driven to denser living. Right. Yeah. Which is what you're reality that, you know, in, in economic terms, that's not priced in yet. <laughs> into what yeah. We do. Yeah, wow. We, we value our space though, eh? Somehow in Canada, in North yeah. America, we, we, just, we, we, yeah. Well, I think one of the things that housing has is, um, it's this HGTV phenomenon. It's very romantic. We start nesting, you know, we start dreaming about taking out this wall and painting this color. And yeah. suddenly this home is not just an investment and consumable. It's actually a reflection of our personality. Somehow it becomes part of our identity where we live. They've shown that, you know, in this recent crisis with having students at home, it has really realized income inequality because people are on zoom calls and some people are at the cottage on their deck taking the yeah. call and somebody else you. is in a you know an apartment that has like lots of people and you're trying to find a corner where you can shine your your you know your video camera against a blank wall that yeah. this is you're really crazy. revealing that people have um very large income inequality um that is a concern. Now, the U.S. is bigger than Canada. Do you have concerns about income inequality with respect to housing and what that means? It's essential. Yeah, absolutely. I really do. You know, and you're talking about within one cohort. Well, think of um, I'm at the very beginning of Gen X, um, 1965, the year I was born. My, my son's, of course, a millennial. The chance of him having the same kind of wealth as me is much lower because of housing. Because my gains in housing, our gains in housing, uh, is their cost. Um, and so that is a, housing's a big deal just between generations. Um, and the amount of money that's been made on housing is promoting inequality. If Canada represents anything in the world, it's tolerance, social mobility. For goodness sakes, we don't have it perfect. You know, we have racism here too. Um, and, and, and inequality. But as someone once said, we have the world's cleanest dirty sheets. If we don't get this right, and housing's in a, a key enabler because of the uniqueness of housing. If we don't get it right, then what we think we stand for is more fragile. I think it yeah. really helps a lot. Well, I think that's a good spot to leave people reflecting um, this has been a really great conversation. Uh, I feel like we've covered a lot of ground and, uh, thank you for your perspective. I think it really, yeah. Um, I think what's really nice is you're a nice person. Sometimes people always think of economics as this, you know, hard nose, money, money, money. You're an investment banker, money, money, yeah. money. And yet you have this, um, heart that says, let's figure out what we can do for people to make their lives better. And I think that that's a good attitude to have and very Guelph. Very Guelph. Very Guelph. Thanks for joining us. You're very welcome. It's been my pleasure. Um, and uh, I've contributed a little bit to your students' understanding of housing. I'm delighted. Yeah, that was great. Thank you so much.